Rumor has it there is a secret base hidden underneath the Archelaus. So have you ever been in a spaceship? Don't try this at home. Secrets of Area 51 Reveal. I'm from Series A, not Series B. Who are you, huh? Yeah, hey, Mama. It's time to open your eyes, open your mind, and shift your paradigm. You're tuned in to a brand new episode of All Night with Living Geeks, a podcast in which we investigate and discuss high strangeness in the weird world in which we live. I'm your host, Taylor, and across from the virtual desk for me tonight is my brother, Seb. Seb, how you doing? I'm doing great. I have to say, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, after almost 10 years' search... I have finally found our great-grandfather's long-lost missing autobiography. Yes, that's right. Share that story. How did that come about? So excited. Just a couple months ago, some of my cousins were of the opinion that it had been recently burnt by our late uh, great-uncle. But it turns out uh, another cousin of ours up in Eugene, Oregon, had all that stuff and kindly gave it all to me. I was hoping just to get a copy. And uh, in in addition, he threw in a whole bunch of amazing old... uh, family photos from the old world to boot so um, that's awesome yeah really exciting stuff got to read it and i'm gonna start the whole process of digitizing it spreading it to all the family members and hopefully it'll survive into another next generation that kind of thing and oh for sure yeah it's just it's it's better than a time machine it's better than a spirit box it's just like a pure connection with an ancestor's brain from like you know years and years ago and it's, it's just it was real it was really you know what do you do when like the one of the things you most searched for and wanted in the world just falls in your lap i mean you just kind of have to just sit back and smile i guess you know mm-hmm. it was great totally it was a really happy ending so um very cool very cool. that's fantastic yeah and i got to see some of those uh got to see some of those photos last yeah. weekend as you brought some of those over that was really neat what how's your month been my month has been good it's been it's been busy mm. to say the least uh you know lots going on we're also screaming toward the end of the school year mm. here so uh lots of last minute stuff to get done and taken care of and all of that and then we're we're off for a week on a on a family trip back east that's right off to the great state of missouri right yes yeah that'd be very exciting yeah so i'm gonna have to make a point of of picking a pretty simple story for next month Right. One that doesn't take a ton of research like this month's did. <laughs> um, well, anyway, on that note, welcome to June, everyone. If you are not uh, someone who gets a summer off, I'm sorry to say that. I don't either. Mm. Uh, but if you are, congratulations on making it through another year. Okay. Uh, so why don't we start with what's new in our weird? What's up with you? Well, I have to tell you, this was a pretty weird month. Uh, my barber is psychic. Uh, okay. Yeah. How how did that come about? Well, I went to my local friendly supercuts in the local strip mall. Okay. Um, and I sat down in the chair, and the very nice lady started cutting my hair. Uh, never met her before, and with mm-hmm. within about three minutes, without any sort of prompting from me, she brought up several salient facts on her own. Okay. She claimed I looked like Mark Summers, former host of Nickelodeon's great TV show Double Dare. 
Right, right. One of my favorite shows. Uh, she also brought up, unprompted, another favorite Nickelodeon show of mine that nobody seems to talk about anymore. You can't do that on television. Okay. She brought up San Jose State University, my alumni, my 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 um, alma mater, I should say. Um, and she also mentioned studying medieval history at Cambridge University. Well, I studied medieval history at Oxford University. Hmm. All within about three minutes, all unprompted. So I'm thinking to myself, is she psychic? Is this a coincidence? I ended up giving her a huge tip. And only later did it occur to me that when I called ahead to make the reservation, their computer system... They always ask you what your telephone number is, and that's how they they remember you in your computer system. Right, right. I started wondering whether or not Supercuts as a corporation has some sort of new fancy algorithm that auto-generates potential talking points by double-checking your social media profile. Um, oh, wow. That would be that would be weird. It would be weird. But anyway, whether or not that's true, or just my barber psychic, or it was just a coincidence, in my opinion, all three... Different explanations are equally fascinating, and it was a really interesting experience. Mm-hmm. So that was that was probably the weirdest thing to happen to me this month. Um, but uh, what's what happened? What's new in your weird? Well, I you know I guess what's new in my weird is that I'm I find it weird that I'm I'm running into people who are not friends or family uh, who listen to the podcast. <laughs> I, I actually I want to shout out how uh, bizarre uh, I know I know I want to shout out listener uh, Adam Burr uh, he is also a Newkirk Museum member and there was a um, a post um, in response to a live stream which I think actually happened toward the end of April mm. uh, in which uh, he had made uh, some comment about um, Oh, I think it was with respect to the cipher, but had mentioned uh, our podcast by name and um, or mostly by name because we kind of have a long name. And uh, I was like, oh, my gosh. Yes, that's absolutely right. We we totally did talk about this topic mm. and you listen. That's fantastic. And so, yeah, that was just uh, that was just a neat little, I don't know, just a happy moment. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. You know? Thank you for listening. Yeah. Totally appreciate that. Uh, and uh, and if you're also a museum member and you listen, uh, welcome aboard and hello and welcome. And if you're just listening and you just found us, even better. Hi there. How's it going? <clears throat> welcome. <clears throat> anyway, yeah, man. We are almost to 30 episodes next Ooh. month. 30 episodes right now. Episode 29, continuing our, uh, our what, our From the Pages mm. Uh, adventure this year and uh, we've got man I we managed to both pick kind of large ones <laughs> this month so Seb why don't you start with yours well we're going large tonight ladies and gentlemen I have a story entitled Giants Threaten Martinique and Taylor I kind of in a roundabout way have to thank you for this um, a couple okay. of months ago you did a paranormal story from the hawaiian islands um and i got kind of in that island theme that island mood and so i decided to like see where i could go to in the islands but of course this time i'm aiming more at the caribbean rather than the the central pacific um so this is an article that appeared in 1964 in volume one of the controversial phenomenon bulletin it's an article written by a gentleman by the name of joseph ferrier Mm -hmm. And I won't read the whole thing, but let's get into some of the highlights. So he writes, 
Quote, did a flying saucer crash on Mount Pele on the Caribbean island of Martinique? Some rocket experts who firmly believe in the existence of life on other planets contend that a flying saucer or projectile from Mars, Venus, or some planet in the space may have crashed on Mount Pele in 1958. The French government appropriated about $3 million for their scientists to get to the bottom of the matter fast. Well, here it is, 1964. And nothing is said. What are what are we waiting for? An answer, of course. What else? <laughs> we saucer enthusiasts are always looking for an answer or more proof of crash saucers, even the occupants, if possible. It all started with discussions about articles about the following headline: <laughs> Strange radioactive deposits grow monsters. <laughs> Gigantic monsters in the West Indies. <laughs> Cats, eighteen times normal size in Martinique. That's really big. That's really big. This article was written in late November of 1963 with the intention of trying to get an answer by writing several letters to the French government. Martinique is a French colony and is largely volcanic. Mount Pele is its highest elevation, about 4,900 feet high. On May 8, 1902, Pele erupted and destroyed the city of Saint-Pierre. It seems that in 1958, strange going-ons were happening there. An eminent French scientist, Dr. Jules Cravure, thinks there is some unknown force on the island that affects the growth of animals, insects, plants, and humans to a remarkable degree. Okay. After being on the island only two years... Dr. Gravur claims to have grown three and a half inches at the age of 64, and his assistant, aged 57, has grown four inches. He goes on to say that ants, flies, lizards, snakes, etc. have grown 18 times their normal size and are still getting bigger. Quote, cats have been seen chasing dogs and rats chasing cats, unquote. Strong radiation is coming from Mount Pele. Natives attribute the entire matter as witchcraft. Government officials are mystified and scientists are worried because at this rate, there is nothing to stop these giant insects and flies from invading the mainland and the rest of the globe. It has been noted with alarm that the bigger they get, the smarter they become. Oh man, and suddenly the Jurassic Park theme starts playing. <laughs> Dr. Crabour also pointed out that it is possible, perhaps inevitable, that all of these reptiles, insects, and animals will grow larger and larger from generation to generation. Will they also get smarter and smarter? The rodents are already attacking young and old alike. When they are asleep, a special institute has been set up where ge expert geologists, radiologists, mineralogists, etc. are feverishly attempting to solve the problem. Trees and vegetables recently planted have shot up with amazing speed. Fantastic speed. Some have assumed monstrous shapes. Oh my heavens. Did some intelligence form of life from space vary a machine or device of some sort on Mount Pele for experimental reasons? Or did the saucer really crash? A planned invasion via the animals and insects? Or is this just one of nature's many little jokes on man quote? So, oh boy, oh boy, when I was researching for tonight's episode and I stumbled upon this gem, I just, I was so excited because I gotta tell you... I feel like this article is just one of nature's many jokes on mankind. I mean, it's 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 almost it's World Weekly News esque in a way. It it, it this um, is the plot. This is a plot to a B movie from the nineteen fifties. I'm pretty sure it's very B movie esque, and I I was very excited to find it. Um, and you know what? That one of the things that excited me the most was I can't remember ever you know reading about this in any. Time Life Mystery of the Unknown book. I've had, I don't remember seeing any clickbaity YouTube videos on this topic. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, this is 
this is brand new ground. I'm treading virgin territory, so to speak, you know? Yeah, and I've, I've certainly not heard of, like, anyone in the Martinique region saying, hey, here's an ant that's, you know, <laughs> 36 millimeters long. I know, right? Um, and so I started doing some research. I started using my usual, you know, techniques and tricks to try to find additional information. And I'll tell you, for a couple of days... I was coming up with absolutely nothing. And, hmm. and it, it, I started to get a little worried because I thought to myself, what if this is, story is entirely the imagination of the author of the article? And there were never ever such individuals like Dr. Cravure, for instance. And uh, finally, I, I managed to break the, break the case. I found um, brief mentions of this story in a handful of 1970 paranormal paperbacks but they were basically just, you know, rehashes of the story, not a lot of additional details. And then I okay. finally I finally broke the case. I found a couple articles in some non-English publications that had some more information for us. So according... Hello? Oh, yeah, I'm here. Okay, sorry. Cut out there for a second. According to a September 22nd, 1962 article in the German newspaper St. Weiter Zeitung. I'm not sure if I'm okay. pronouncing that correctly. sure, sure. Um, the research of Dr. Jules Gravure and Albert Rouen on Martinique revealed some additional details. Quote, one finding is particularly interesting. The more primitive the creature, the greater the additional growth. While in adult human glands produce a maximum of 7 to 8 centimeters of regrowth, dogs suddenly become larger by 10, cats almost 15 centimeters or longer than is usually appropriate for their speed. Theoretically, the animal should grow larger from generation to generation, and as a result of the radiation accumulated of minerals at, on Mount Pele, should soon produce gigantic specimens never seen before, claims Dr. Oh, Gravier. boy. So I'm like thinking, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> and then I find, I find I probably the most uh, illuminating article on this topic. Um, this was a letter published in a uh, French academic journal in 1956. The journal's titled Journal de la Société des Americanistes, and it offers a different perspective on the case. Uh, quote, a race of giants threatens Martinique, such as the frightening news reaching us through the press from Washington and Caracas. Extraordinary growth of plants, animals, and even men. Dr. Gravure, age 64, and his, and his assistant, Dr. Ruan, in two years have seen their heights grow, grow respectively, by 8 and 5 centers. Rats, as big as cats, endanger children's lives. The French government would have sent an official fact-finding mission to the... We immediately questioned the director of the National Institute of Agronomic Research on the nearby island of Guadeloupe, Monsieur H. Stelet, who very kindly wanted to calm our anguish. Quote, men have not grown, rats have not grown, and the plants, even on the slopes of Pele under various irritations, have not grown in a sensible manner. However, the names of Dr. Gravure and Ruan are not completely unknown. We have seen them across the countryside, oddly holding in their hands a Geiger counter, which they did not seem to know how to use. Oh boy. What is more worrisome is that La Soufrière, a volcano on the nearby island of Saint-Vincent, has woken up, unquote. So it seems like it seems uh, if if it kind of took the uh, it kind of took these giants and took a little bit of the wind out of them and and, and brought them back down to size again. So uh, oh boy, it looks like maybe we're we're saved and we're not going to be invaded by giant insects from 
the island of Martinique. But I was happy to discover that these two individuals apparently were real real people who were kind of poking around the the uh, countryside on on, uh, uh, on Martinique, trying to do some crazy research. Uh, unfortunately, I've just ne- never been able to find out anything more about them or what their backstories were or if they ever stopped growing basically so or if they eventually got into some other strange topic in some other tropical locale i know right it's like what it's like who are these people that they can go to <clears throat> paradise on earth and start investigating their paranormal and where do i sign up for that yeah um, right especially if the weather's nice and there's you know a, a like a tiki bar or something nearby yeah so anyway this was just a fun little story it was kind of I, it did have a ufo connection but it was more dealing with giant monsters and i thought that was a nice change from my usual ufo or alien or cryptid type story um well yeah definitely i don't think we've we've really had much in the way of stories on giants so yeah definitely um so anyway so that's i mean i wish i i wish i wish the story i wish i was able to find more it seems like there were more maybe tabloid type newspaper articles in the late 50s dealing with this topic that i just haven't not been able to find yet online so if any of our listeners out there in uh, radio land hear this and know more please let us know yeah that's an interesting one yeah and and maybe if nothing else they should have at least read the manual on the geiger counter right exactly <laughs> so taylor what what story do you have for us tonight all right. Well, my story is uh, the Las Vegas UFO crash Whoa. of April eighteenth, nineteen sixty-two. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, this is another story that I first saw via a news clipping in a scrapbook of UFO-related articles that the New York Museum of the Paranormal shared with its members about a year or two ago. Okay. Uh, so it's the same scrapbook where our Snippy story comes from. Snippy. Snippy. <laughs> Justice for Snippy. Um, Now, I don't actually think I'd ever heard of this story Mm. before. Um, Or if I had heard of it, I didn't, like, make the full connection with this. Because this actually is a pretty huge story once I started looking into it. Um, Because this story covers, honestly, a large portion of this country. And likely hundreds, possibly even thousands of witnesses. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, So... My information comes from um, a number of sources, mm. um, and I'll, I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Um, so part of it comes from um, a part of a book by Kevin Randall, okay. um, which is basically just, I don't know, typed out by somebody on the internet because, I don't know, copyright doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, there's a website called memorylane.net, but lane isn't spelled out, so it just looks like memorylane. Mm-hmm. .net. I don't know. Again, links in the show notes. Um, and the, the NICAP website, which actually has a number of um, uh, declassified Blue Book uh, PDFs mm. uh, regarding uh, the account. And I, I will be honest, as I cover this, I may, you know, miss or skip over certain aspects of it because there is, is a lot. I was really overwhelmed and I almost scrapped doing this story. Mm. Um, but I kind of forced myself to sit down and go, okay timeline let's let's work this out let's pull things together so the date april 18th 1962 um the time between 8 15 and 8 19 local time so that'd be mountain standard time okay um because this is basically um uh being tracked by norad norad's based in colorado i think it's colorado so why am i no i think it's colorado um 
And though the incident itself lasted 32 minutes, wow. uh, as the object tracked by NORAD crossed a total of 10 states. Hmm. Um, so the incident actually began on the East Coast. Uh, most stories I read about it has it being first spotted over Oneida, New York, hmm. just outside of Syracuse. Um, and it crossed a total of 10 states, including Kansas, Colorado, Utah, before disappearing somewhere in Nevada. And at that point, Nellis Air Force Base has it on its radar at about 10,000 feet. Okay. Okay. So, um, an Air Force Defense Command alert reported the object was tracked and traced over New York, Kansas, Utah, Idaho, Montana, New Mexico, Wyoming, Arizona, and California, so that its light, this is very luminous, uh, covered almost as much area as that created by the big hydrogen uh, bomb tests held later in the Pacific. Wow. Uh, some of the most notable this is where I find it actually a little problematic is because most of the sighting reports are in Utah and Nevada. Mm. I looked to try to find somebody's account of, oh, yeah, I, I'm in New York and I saw it or I'm in Kansas and I saw it overhead. Right. So I have I have some problems with the logic and stuff from this. But anyway, most of the notable sightings reports come from Utah. Um from Kevin Randall's retelling of the case, he says, according to Captain Herman Gordon Shields, who was interrogated at Hill Air Force Base by Douglas M. Crouch, uh, the chief criminal invested, the chief of the criminal investigation sections. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm quoting here from uh, this, this uh, Air Force Reserve captain. He's like, I was flying a C-19 aircraft from the left seat captaincy we were approximately two miles west of levan utah flying at 8500 8, feet our true airspeed was a little less than 170 knots we were making a right turn from a heading of about 68 degrees to 165 degrees mm. we were approximately 25 degrees of bank on the aircraft so they're tilted to, at, at 25 degrees and we had turned for about 30 degrees to a heading of about 98 or 100 degrees somewhere in there when it began to get very bright in the cockpit. The illumination was from above. It built up slowly. My impression was the, uh, sorry, my first impression while the intensity was low was that it was the landing lights of another aircraft. Of course, when the intensity increased, this was ruled out automatically. The cockpit was illuminated from above. In the C-19, in the C-119 aircraft, there's an instrument panel in the middle of the cockpit up above the ceiling. The light source was coming from this area that was blanked out. In other words, straight behind this instrument panel, because neither Lieutenant Larson, who was in the flight seat, nor I saw the source of the illumination. We continued the turn. The light intensity increased until we could see objects on the ground as bright as day for a radius of 5 to 10 miles from the aircraft. Whoa. Yeah. So let's take this for a second. Yeah. You are in a plane. Right. You're 8,500 feet above the ground. Right. There is something above you that is so bright in intensity that it looks like daytime on the ground for a five to 10 mile radius. That is huge. Yeah. This is insanely bright. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to say, this would probably be a diameter of 20 miles or so. Objects on the ground, on the hills around us were clearly distinguishable. Colors were distinguishable. It was as bright as daylight. The intensity of the light diminished faster than it had increased. 
After the light had decreased in intensity, we were still looking for the light source, and I noticed an object to my left between the wing and the lower part of the fuselage of the aircraft against the hills. By this time, the light had decreased so that the hills were dark. It was night again, and this object which I saw, uh, and this object which I saw was illuminated. It had a long, slender appearance comparable to a cigarette in size. That is the diameter with respect to the length of the object. The forepart, or the lower of the object, was very bright, intense white, such as a magnesium fire. The second half, to the aft section, was clear was a clearly distinguishable yellowish color. I'd say the object was uh, just about divided in half, the forepart being intensely white, the aft section having more yellow color to it. Uh, later in the same report, uh, Captain Shields said, I saw only a slender object. I don't know what the shape was. It was only a slender object. There was no exhaust, no trail following after it. It was clearly defined. I saw it for a period of maybe one to two seconds. Mm. Um, <clears throat> now, my my reading of all of these files, mm-hmm. right? We talk about Blue Book, Blue Book got involved. Mm-hmm. Um, they did They did a study, but... Honestly, everything I've seen says they concluded their study in a day. And there's something about that just does not jive with me. Mm. And I'm like, why would you finish a study that quickly? Mm -hmm. Especially when so many people saw it over such a wide swath. And I've got I've got more more accounts from people here in Utah. And they said it's a bolide. Bolide's a type of uh, meteor um, that will be very intense in luminosity and and kind of like lasts for a while before ultimately exploding i kind of think the um the one in chelyabinsk Mm -hmm. in 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 2013 was was similar yeah in nature um now i my big big question that i tried to answer and i i like i reached out to nasa um, i put i put word out on Twitter, trying to find somebody who had some sort of knowledge of can a meteor even last that long? Yeah. Um, 32 minutes um, without exploding, yeah. without disintegrating um, and, and keeping its luminosity uh, uh, consistent mm-hmm. and, and to be that bright on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um and and unfortunately, I really didn't get any feedback. Um, I did eventually get an email back from NASA, and it was basically a, hey, thanks for reaching out. Here's all our different resources. Asks. And I'm like, this is a form email. You guys are garbage. What the heck? I asked a specific question. Come on, NASA. Like, what the hell? Um, but I did try to look around online and be like, okay, what? Wh- what's the record for the longest, you know, meteor streak? Mm. Um, and unfortunately got a lot of records for the largest meteor to strike the earth. And I'm like, that's <laughs> not what I'm looking no, for. No. Um, but I did work out. I, I basically, I sat down with Google maps and tracked like the known states that it crossed Okay. and came up with a, I think it was a roughly 2,800 mile long path. Yeah. Um, and so if this event took 32 minutes, it was, you know, doing roughly about 4,000 miles an hour the whole way. Wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. Now, now we know from science that it can't actually do that. It's passing through the air. The friction of the air is going to slow it down. Mm. Right? So even if it was on the East coast going faster and it slowed down. Right. And I'm sure there's a mathematical formula to work out, you know, the, 
resistance of air on an object. I don't know that formula. Okay. I'm an English major. I'm not a math major. <laughs> um, my guess is that by the time it had crossed 2,800 miles, and it was not a perfectly straight line either. Mm. Um, although, again, Earth being curved, it could technically be a straight enough line. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, it, it, I, I don't, I don't see it making it all the way to Nevada before that speed reaches zero. Right. Right. Um, so right off the bat, my mind is going in a couple different directions. Is it like, okay, was a meteor spotted on the East Coast, maybe the Midwest, uh-huh. but then this is a completely different object uh, by the time we get to the Rockies and West. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so West of the Rockies, you're on the air. <laughs> right. Um, miss you, Art. Um, and then East of the Rockies. It's a different number. No, I mean it's um it's a different object. <laughs> um I, I don't I don't know. Yeah. But more of the accounts that come out of the Utah region um definitely make me think that this could not possibly have been a meteor. Okay. And again, this is my personal opinion, your mileage may vary. Yeah. Um so uh let's see. Oh, is the object passed over Robinson, Utah? Um uh, and this is um uh, this is actually coming from um, what's listed here as an unidentified witness. Okay. So take it, you know, at face value. Um, it slowed down in the air, and after a gasping sound was heard, the object spurted ahead again. Hmm. After this procedure was repeated three or four times, the object arched over and began descending to Earth, after which the object turned bluish color and then burned out or went dark. Huh. After the object began to slow down, it began to wobble or fishtail in its path. Mm. Now, I put this one in here specifically because of the wobble. Yeah. That has come up multiple times as we've talked about the phenomena, as we've talked about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially at, I guess, lower speeds, mm-hmm. there is this kind of wobble, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it makes me think of those times where people have put, you know, a Buick hubcap or the top of a Coleman lantern on a fishing line <laughs> and stuck it out there. And it just, it kind of wobbles in the wind, mm-hmm. you know, it wobbles at the end of this line. And that takes me to the trickster and the paranormal where it talks about, you know, um, the the phenomena almost requiring just a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of hoax mm-hmm. in order to i i think um i think the haunted objects podcast one time put it as as to kind of act as a lubricant mm, interesting for 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 the phenomena itself to manifest yeah i mean i you know i I've, I've read a lot of accounts where people have talked about this wobble and they've used terms like a falling mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it's one of the weirder aspects of ufo reports that that's consistent over decades and over different countries that has always caught my attention for sure yeah yeah um so further reports come out of the nephi utah area uh among the first to cite the object was sheriff raymond jackson of nephi Uh, according to him he was on main street and heard a kind of roar he glanced up and saw a yellow white flame going west Heard a series of loud booms and saw the lights in Nephi go out. Hmm. That's right. Not only does this object completely illuminate the the uh, ground beneath it, yeah. but there are multiple multiple reports huh. about lights going out, about it being so bright that the photoelectric cells mm. in like streetlights mm. 
trip and the streetlights go out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He glanced up and saw a yellow-white flame going west. Oh, I read that part already. Sorry. Jackson noted specifically the lights in the doctor's office, but said all the lights were out temporarily. Hmm. That would become an important clue when the rest of the case was put together. Also in the Nephi area were Maurice Mehmet and Dan Johnson. According to a story published in the Nephi Times News, both men were south of town working on their farms when the object shot overhead. Mehmet claims that he no longer remembers much about the incident, just a bright light in the sky that lit the ground like the sun. He told me that he now believes it was a muir. Dan Johnson, on the other hand, remembers the event quite well. He said, The two of us were out in the fields. There were no lights, so we were in total darkness. It came over the southeastern horizon and passed directly over them. It was a very bright light. Johnson didn't remember hearing any sound, but did claim that the object landed somewhere in the northwest. He didn't think it was more than five or six miles away. Um, and that's something that I start to notice as, I, as we're going through these stories, is that in a lot of cases, it's actually, if it's an object coming from New York, mm-hmm. from the East Coast... And coming kind of like swinging down through the Midwest and across the Rockies to kind of the the middle latitudes Mm. of the country. If it's going um, from the southeast to the northwest, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like it's arcing upward again rather than coming from a more east to west direction. But again, Mm. these are people out in the field. Mm -hmm. They're making estimations. I totally get it. Could, it could be a due east to west, and they just were like, eh, it seems like it was the southeast, I guess. Mm. You know, so I'm I'm not saying hard evidence one way or the other, but it is something to note. Yeah. Um, Johnson also said that several men, he thought they might have been military, though none were in uniform, came out to interview both Mehmet and him. The men drove them back out into the country and made them point to the location where the object landed. Huh. The Times News confirmed Johnson's story of the investigation and added an interesting note. The speculation was that the investigators were not from the Air Force, but soldiers from the Army's Dugway Proving Grounds not far from that area. And there are plenty of people who feel like, kind of like once Area 51 was found out, that a lot of stuff moved to Dugway. Granted, that was long after the 60s. So did Dugway have something going on already? I don't know. Um... Let's see. Okay, so so tracking tracking the de- dates supplied, uh, it seems that the conclusion is correct. Two separate teams of investigators made the rounds in Nephi after the events, and a few people remember talking to Colonel Friend and Doctor Allen J. Hein- or sorry, J. Allen Heineck. I always do that. I always do that. Uh, Colonel Friend, it seems, was in uniform during the one day he was there. There's no way that the two teams could have been confused. Um, so further, Sergeant E.C. Sherwood of the Utah Highway Patrol was also in Nephi that evening. He looked up in time to see the ball of fire and thought that it was something from New Mexico's White Sands Missile Range. It was a bright light that was mostly blue and seemed to explode right over him, throwing off a cloud of white sparks. Okay, so this is the first time we we get an incident of it exploding. Right, right. Um, It definitely seems it points, if this is the same object in every instance, um, that it definitely seems to be having maybe carburetor trouble. And was kind of like <laughs> surging and, and, and sputtering and stuff. Yeah. So now we have it exploding right overhead, throwing off a cloud of white sparks. Sherwood's wife heard the explosion and ran outside. She saw the bright light, but nothing beyond that. She mentioned to me that the neighbors were also outside looking up into the night sky. Um, a number of other residents in town reported the explosions or the roar. Some of them explained that it was a series of explosions, 20 or 30 of them strung together. Their descriptions ran from a rocket's engine to 
to an artillery shell flying over. Hmm. So from Nephi, the object traveled to the northwest toward Eureka, Utah, which is about 30 miles away. It flew over Bob Robinson and Floyd Evans, two good, wholesome American names if I've ever heard them. According to Robinson, they were traveling south of Eureka when they stopped for a moment and climbed out of their pickup truck. Robinson saw the light in the southeast and pointed it out. Evans thought it was just a jet. The object approached them rapidly and passed directly overhead. Robinson said that he thought it was no higher than 500 feet. Okay, now we're starting to get some big differences in this object's elevation, right? Earlier, we had the two guys flying the C-119. They were at 8,500 feet, and this light was above them. Hmm. So we're talking, what, 9,000, 10,000 feet, perhaps? You know, without knowing for sure. Now here's an estimation of it at 500 feet. Um, It was a flaming object, and he thought he could see a series of square windows on the craft almost hidden in the glow of it. Robinson said that both men were frightened by the experience. They dived under the truck for protection. The engine of the truck began to sputter and run roughly as the object approached, and the headlights dimmed. But the engine didn't stall, and the lights didn't go out completely. Wow. Interesting note. As it reached them, the object seemed to slow as if taking a look at the truck. Mm. Hey guys, what's up? (laughs) How you doing? Um, Robinson thought the object or the light from it was visible for about two minutes. Mm. As it disappeared in the west, the lights of the truck brightened and the engine smoothed out, running normally. So many of the people here report seeing it travel from southeast to northwest, which seems odd if it was traveling from New York across the Midwest and presumably further west. Um, There is one uh, report in these Blue Book files, and I didn't quite include it because I just couldn't reconcile it in any ways, but it actually suggests that the object came up the East Coast, like over Cuba and up the East Coast, and then turned. Huh. In New York, Whoa. and started this path, right. but I, I just like I just have the one source. I couldn't really reconcile it in any other way. I will make note of it yeah. because it that you know that report does exist, but it definitely suggests to me that this is well not a meteorite. You know, it's it is an object, and in my mind, assuming it is the same object in every case. Um, it was eventually reported in the Reno, Nevada area, but people there report the object heading out of the west toward the east. A witness there, Homer Raycraft, which is a great name, said that he saw a big fireball traveling due east. Hmm. He claimed the object disappeared behind a mountain range, and then there was a big flash. People in Utah reported the object flying at about a thousand feet overhead, but a Bonanza Airlines pilot said the light passed beneath his aircraft, which is flying at 11,000 feet. So that makes two flight crews and two different aircraft who had reported the object below their planes. Mm. Um, According to uh, Kevin Randall, this, along with the conflicting directions, seems to rule out the bolide theory because the meteor would have been too low for too long a period. Um, It's also worth noting, and I say this as myself, just kind of having done some research, is that meteors are almost never tracked by radar. Um, It's highly unusual, and I believe if anything is actually tracked, it's the ionization of the air around it, and it doesn't appear as though it's a solid object. Okay. So whatever this was eventually exploded, and I put that in quotations, in a brilliant flash, so brilliant that it was reported seen in a minimum of six states. Mm. Nevada, Utah, Idaho, California, Arizona, and Kansas. Jeez, that's bright. Um, that's insane. Yeah. 
That is absolutely insane. An Air Force intelligence report uh, described it as one violent explosion and 20 to 30 sharp explosions uh, that followed the illumination. Um, And yeah, it's the fact that people claim that it crashed, uh, although some say landed, at Nellis Air Force Base. I, I think they're confusing the Air Force Base with the Nellis Range. Okay. Now, the Nellis Range is really this ginormous swath of land yeah. that includes air, places like Area 51 in the middle of Nevada. Yeah. Um, because when you read the first story, the actual like news article from the Las Vegas Sun, it actually says that it landed hmm. um, basically at Nellis Air Force Base. Wow. Um, and that I feel like, given the amount of people and personnel who work at the base itself, you know, we would have heard something, mm. or it would have been like, "Oh no, it was a a U two that was coming in off a mission mm. and it crashed, or whatever." Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so um, this is I'm not quoting here anymore. These are my words. Working on the assumption that all these sightings, and I, again, I really wish there were more accounts from east of the Rockies here on the air, mm-hmm. um, are of the same object. I can't possibly believe it was a meteor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to, like I said, the to cross the distance from New York to Nevada in 32 minutes, it's got to be doing in the neighborhood of 4,000 miles an hour. Right. Right. Um, and I don't, I just, I can't believe that any space rock could hold itself together yeah. with air friction for 32 minutes wow like that's a really really long time this is some story it, it really is and there's just enough variation from person to person mm. um and and you know you look at the fact that norad and nellis both tracked a solid object mm. um for an extended period of time um you know you're looking at the fact that it was bright enough to trip photoelectric cells mm-hmm. and turn off streetlights. Um, it clearly, um, you know, caused at least power in one town to go out. Mm-hmm. Um, there is actually one account, uh, again, from Utah that it actually landed and like, you know, like powered up, like like took power from the town and then took off again. Oh, okay. Um, it just is so strange yeah. in this sense that I, I go... You know, I I try to reconcile all the different tellings and all the different stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even the suggestion that in parts of the country it was seen going in completely the opposite direction. (laughs) You know, Um, again, could this could this just be the phenomenon putting on just a massive show and everybody is seeing it a little differently. That's why we get one person who's like, yeah, I don't really remember much of that night. I think it was a meteor. And the guy who was right there next to him and with him mm. was like, I actually remember a ton of detail. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I've heard stories kind of like this where, um, you know, two people can be having an experience and they're having very different reactions to them. Right, right. So anyway, um, if this was the case, an explosion that could be seen in six different states would likely have leveled the base. Right. If it if it had actually crashed at Nellis Air Force Base and not on the Nellis Range, mm-hmm. possibly even part of Las Vegas, hmm. right? I have trouble believing even that if um, you know it had crashed out in the desert of Nevada and had created that big a blast and that much illumination that I mean, 
yes, it's a little more believable because there's a lot of land out there, but I would imagine an explosion of that size would have left a hell of a crater that surely somebody would have spotted. Right, right. You know, I get that there's a lot of restricted airspace out there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was as restricted in the 1960s as it is today. Uh Um, You know... I would like to think that even even from a certain elevation, seen at an angle, might be able to pick out a crater from an explosion whose illumination could be seen over six states. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just there's just enough of the story that doesn't add up that makes me really sit and wonder for long periods of time. Well, what's your gut feeling? What's your gut telling you that this whole incident was? I, my gut, my gut tells me that at least from the Rockies West, uh-huh. it was an object of some kind under some sort of intelligent control. Okay. Okay. East of the Rockies, I'm not as certain, but just because I don't have a lot of witness accounts. Okay. I have no information to take from that. Um, so I can't really judge like that half of its path. Um, and I looked, I, I, I wanted to find something from Kansas. I wanted to find something from, you know, Illinois or, uh, New York or whatever. Uh, and uh, yeah, at one point, and I, I can't remember if it was somebody in Nevada or somebody in, in Utah, you know, described it as looking like a giant flaming sword. Mm. And I'm like, that's frighteningly biblical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. like that some, some Mormon somewhere really had the fear of God put in them that night. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like, wh- wh- what do you think? Um, <sighs> You know, I I guess the first thing that hits me is I wonder if it could have been some sort of top secret government vehicle or some sort of space vehicle or... I mean, I I don't think it could be space junk because I think you're right. I think there's too much evidence that there's some sort of intelligent control. But if that's the case, it has to be some sort of high technology that even to this day, they don't publicly acknowledge. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But... uh, I mean, that's, yeah, I definitely think it sounds like it's intelligent. And I just, it's, it, it strikes me that it's like, um, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's so annoying that things like this happened like before the age of smartphones, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where, mm-hmm. where, the, yeah. And security cameras. Secu- oh, so yeah. Security cameras and all that kind of stuff, because this would be, think of how big this news would have been today, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or if it happened maybe at, in the at daytime when more people were awake or, you know, watching the skies, you might think, you know? Right, right. Or even just outside. Um, I mean, the interaction with, like, the ground-based electronics, you know, or, or like, in the, in the vehicle of the one group of witnesses, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, very strange, very strange. Um, yeah, no, this is a great story. It's a great mystery. Um, and and I, I wish, you know, it's, it's surprising because I've never heard about this story until tonight. So it's definitely a story that I think, you know, deserves a higher profile for sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, if, if only to kind of just hopefully gather more information, mm-hmm. more stories yeah. uh, on it. Now now I feel like tomorrow at work I'm going to have to like look up like what the calculation for air resistance is. Like how, how quickly would it slow an object? Oh, right, right, yeah. You know, if it starts here and it's supposed to go this far, could it have even made it? Good, good point, yeah. Just, just with standard standard you know physics i mean if it, especially if it's flying at lower elevation than certain airplane aircraft you know if yeah pilots seeing it below it below them below where they're flying at you know yeah and you would think that like even with air resistance it can take a pretty predictable path mm. you know 
it's it's not really gonna make any radical turns it's not gonna like drop down and then come back up mm-hmm. you know um so yeah just just that compared with witness accounts i they don't they don't add up yeah yeah saying it saying it's a meteor just doesn't work for me well intriguing i hope there's more details that come out about this yeah we'll see we'll see and if you know if listeners have any insight or know of any resources that maybe we missed yeah please point them out to us we always you know we always want more information definitely yeah well every month seb i know you go digging into the old timey archives to unearth the story of high strangeness what do you have for us this month (laughs) oh boy taylor ladies and gentlemen we have an article from the los angeles herald newspaper of september 9th 1894 Ooh, going way back going way back and seeing how tonight's episode i told a story about giant monsters in a french speaking part of the world i thought it would be appropriate to to bring up this little gem which is about man-eating giant spider under the streets of paris france Oh, I think I remember seeing that movie. Oh, my goodness gracious. That was was a good one. Um, There there will be a link to the full article in the show notes. I won't read the whole article, but I'll just give a a little flavor. So here we go, folks. Monster Mystery of Paris. For many years in Paris, a number of persons had mysteriously appeared. The police had failed to discover the least trace of them. Every year, some inhabitants would suddenly disappear, always in the early spring from the 20th to the last of March. Well, that's a really specific window. Very specific window. These these mysterious disappearances always occurred late at night. The chief of police became very anxious and instituted a strict surveillance. One night, a policeman about 8 o'clock heard a distant musical song which seemed to come from the bowels of the earth. The sounds came from an opening in the center of the street at the foot of an enormous rock called the Giant's Cave. This rock derived its name from a legend that a giant, a great giant, had been buried there many years before the Christian era, and this rock had been placed there to mark the tomb. The policeman suddenly saw a young man approaching. This young man also seemed to hear the sounds, walking as if in cadence with the musical chant near the rock until it was swallowed up in the opening. The, The policeman followed, first firing his revolver and giving one or two vigorous blasts on his whistle. Several of his comrades quickly arrived. They could hear in the dark, cavernous depths the muffled sounds of a desperate struggle. The light of their lamps revealed a sickening sight. The man was lying in his back in the grasp of an unknown monster. It was as large as a full-grown terrier, covered in wart-like protuberances and bristling with coarse brownish hair. Eight jointed legs terminated by formidable claws were buried in the bottom of the unfortunate victim. As soon as they recovered their horror, a dozen bullets struck the beast. He raised up on his legs a greenish bloody liquid flowing from his wounds and with a frightful cry expired. Oh, wow. It was with great difficulty they succeeded in removing the unknown monster from the cavern. The commissioner of police summoned a naturalist in great haste. The creature was a gigantic spider. The species had been considered extinct for centuries. It was said to have the power of enticing its victims by a peculiar musical song. Oh, what? The dead body of the spider was conveyed to the Museum of Natural History, where it was carefully prepared and stuffed, and now is on an exhibition once a week. And... (laughs) Now, 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 before you just, before everybody out there in Radio Land totally poo-poos the story, I just want to say one thing. Justice for Spidey? I just have to say that there is actually a, a part of a neighborhood in Paris, specifically um, 14th District or Arrondissement of Paris. Okay. And there actually is a street, the Rue de la Tombe Issoire, and it's a 
street named after the tomb of a legendary 10th century giant. So interesting. there definitely is that part of the story that 100% checks out. Um, whether or not there was a gigantic musical man-eating spider living on the street is up to debate. But uh, Oh my god. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, uh, wow. What a what an episode tonight. We we we, uh, we really kind of covered some of the French speaking countries. We uh, we really lit up the the western night sky. Um, I know you would you would almost say we had a a huge topic. <laughs> a very huge topic. Yes. Ugh. This is crazy. Yes. This is crazy. Yeah. This is this is an episode of gigantic proportions. Indeed. Indeed. Stop me. I'll pun all night. <laughs> And yet it's not like one of our three-hour episodes. No, good heavens, because, yeah, we've certainly had those. Um, I was a little worried that this would go um, for quite some time, but, uh, you know, we we like to aim for conciseness every now and then. I love how the giant man-eating spider is on display only once a week. <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> like which day? You why, know, it's like... why, would you, why would you only, you know, put that out on Wednesdays? It's just like... <laughs> Can I get my money back? I wanted to see the giant spider. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, monsieur, you should be here yesterday. <laughs> I like how every French... You guys are really missed it. You should have been here yesterday. I, I love how yeah. every time you do a French accent, it's obviously Inspector Clouseau. Absolutely. <laughs> this, doesn't everybody in France talk like Peter Sellers? I think so. I think so. Doing Inspector Clouseau? <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, well, do you have any final thoughts to, on tonight's episode before we wrap it up, or...? I, I I don't know, but but thanks to our our dishwasher, I was about to say. On that note, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, man. The world is a, a freaking weird place. It is a strange place. I I I as much as I'm convinced that our our giant French spider is mm. just a uh, 19th century B movie, mm. um, I kind of wish something like that would be completely real. Yeah. Um, although really that is probably the biggest question. Why would they only put it on display one day a week? I know, right? Uh, that's really something that deserves to be on display seven days a week. I also wish yeah. you can get, you know, baguettes to go with it. Cause who, who does popcorn in France? It's baguettes. And I'm, I'm desperate to know what the spider song sounded like, you know? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a weird one. Hopefully, hopefully it was not to the tune of Itsy Bitsy Spider. Right. But there does seem to be a weird thing with like cave, 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 cave dwelling creatures and like weird songs or weird sounds. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah. That, which, that is, which, I think, a, um, a standard. Yeah, it's like a thread through all those stories for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, you, as you said, you know, Elder Brother, it, the world is a strange and weird place, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm so glad to be able to explore it tonight with you and to all our listeners out there in Radioland. Yeah, most definitely. If, uh, you know, if you have stories of strange giants and caves and singing spiders, <laughs> seek us out. Definitely. Uh, hit us up on the Twitters and whatnot. Uh, but you know what, man? That That's it for this month. Yeah. Middle of the year now. Thank you for joining us on this adventure into the weirdness that surrounds us, whether above us, below us, or otherwise, every single day. You can follow us on Twitter at All Night Geeks. You can follow me at BusBuddha71, and you can follow Seb at Clan McMuffin. Ah, oh, that's right. Get a nice toasty hash brown with that. Hey, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and be sure to rate and review us as well. And you know what? Just as importantly, share us with your friends. 
confound your enemies with us. Either way, word of mouth goes a long way to spread the love around. And we'd appreciate it if you tell at least one friend about the podcast. Thanks, as always, go to the Ghoulies for letting us use their song Hot Rods from Outer Space from the album Midnight in America as our intro and outro music. Go give them a follow on the socials and hit up the ghouliesdenver.bandcamp.com to buy their music. Uh, we've got merch. That's over at shop.spreadshirt.com slash N-O-T-L-G. That's right. Shirt, buttons, stickers. I yes. Summertime, man. Getting warm. Mm-hmm. Go, go slap us on a tank top. Um, you know, I've got some ideas for future shirt designs and stuff. Ooh. So I'm starting to do some work on that. So we'll, we'll have some new stuff coming soon. Um, so by all means, go check that out. Thanks as always to Kate, the steam powered mouse for doing the show's artwork. Uh, if you want to throw a few bones our way to keep the hosting paid for, that's over at patreon.com slash N O T L G. Well, that is it for June. Hopefully everybody's off to have a great summer. If you're on the opposite side of the world, a fantastic winter. We will catch you in July. And in the meantime, go out and find something weird. Good night. Good night, folks. Cats, 18 times normal size in Martinique.